Welcome back, everyone. As always, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Cathcart Associates, um, technology recruitment experts and all-round good people. If you're looking for work in these weird times or need to find some amazing people for your team, please do get in touch. So today on the show, I have Dominic Jordan, Director of Data Science and Analytics at N Brown Group in Manchester. I've known Dominic for a few years. Uh, in fact, he spoke at one of our early Mancamel events and has been a valued supporter of the meetup for well, pretty much since then, really. Um, so I'm excited to see down and speak to him about his career and his relatively new position. So ladies and gents, please welcome to the show, Dominic Jordan. Firstly, thanks for coming on the show, Dominic. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. I, I'm, uh, I've only said this to one or two other people, but I, I made a list of uh, of potential guests when I started the podcast, and you're definitely on it, which is nice. I've managed to get a few of those. But I think some people didn't understand what I meant by this, because I asked people for recommendations, and someone suggested I get Elon Musk on, and I wasn't sure how attainable that was. <laughs> so it's, it's not quite well, perfect. Yeah, probably not as um, as attainable as it once was, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. So we always kick off the show on, on education, uh, or if people didn't decide to go to university, we would go on that. But you went to Cambridge uh, University, I'm right in saying. That's right. That's right. Nice. It, it sounds nice, but in practice, you know, there was, it wasn't as 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 kind of um, nice as it sounds from the point of view of, of de- developing me for my career, as it turned out. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I um. Did you move to to study there, or were you already living around there? Uh, no, I grew up actually. I grew up in Cheltenham, which is a small town just south of Birmingham, and it was kind of I'd lived in I'd lived around the world uh, because my dad was a diplomat um, when I was growing up. So so he'd been posted to a bunch of different countries for different periods of time. So I'd moved around quite a lot, but we ended up in Cheltenham, and uh, then I then as I say, I ended up going to Cambridge, and that's. Um, you know, it was it was a, a a similar kind of vibe to 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 Cheltenham in terms of the size of the city, but what I hadn't quite appreciated uh, when I when I went there was how uh, clever everyone was going to be. Which I mean, sounds stupid, but when I was in Cheltenham, I sort of didn't really hang out with mathematicians, and I didn't really hang out with people who uh, who were going to go on to to be in that that particular world. And so I was very surprised when I turned up to see how, I'm not going to say dysfunctional, but actually the variety of, of uh, different people that were there. Um, but the ones who were doing maths were, were not really people that I'd encountered before. Do you know yeah, what okay, I mean? No. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. So yeah, I was going to say, so you did uh, a kind of mixture of, of maths and stats, right? So, I mean, I suppose in hindsight, a, a fairly good grounding for a career in data science, but not that you knew that at the time. Uh, so I think in in uh, from a mathematical point of view, obviously the the, the maths is important, but there was a it was a lot of very archaic stuff. And by the time I got to my third year, uh, I'd I'd specialised in pure maths, and it got very abstract and abstruse. And frankly, I was over it. Uh, maths as a as a career path, specifically yeah. at that at that point, you know. Had you thought maybe like if you go back to first year when it was uh, everything was kind of like brand new and it was exciting, what was the potential mindset that you could do three years of math and then keep going into some sort of like masters or PhD or, or teaching or something like that? I, I honestly didn't know. I I actually looking back, you know, obviously I've been thinking about my career path, you know, in preparation for this uh, discussion, and I just don't know what I was what I wanted to do. I had no, I had no real career advice from my school. I think the only thing they said that I could do was become a weather person, which I, which I envisaged being a weather, like on the TV. I, I think what they meant was forecaster, but it didn't come across that way. And uh, yeah, so that, that was as far as I'd got. And I was very naive and just thought everything's going to be fine. And that was, you know, in hindsight, when I got to the end of my career, at, uh, well, my university career, I had absolutely no idea what to do next. And I hadn't really thought about it. Sounds very stupid. Um, that's where I was. Well, no, I think that's, I think that's amazing. So, I mean, I, I, when I went to school, uh, it was exactly the same as you. There was no real career advice. Um, you didn't really get told anything by the, the career service. So it was one of those. You went to university and then you see what happens. Um, and 
a lot of the guests we've had on this specific show have potentially done a PhD or a master's or they've done some sort of um, like postdoc industry placement, all those kind of things. And then they kind of like, there's a, there's almost a carved out career path, which is amazing. Nothing wrong with that. More, kind of more power to them for having that kind of plan. But one of the parts of kind of your story when we chatted before the show that I really like is that, yeah, you didn't really know what you wanted to do after uni. So like you finished this good degree from a good university uh, and yeah, the, the next step was a bit of an unknown. So honestly, though, at that time, and I'm probably a little bit older than some of the most of the people you've had on listening to your, you know, the previous versions of this. But at that time, there weren't really um, jobs for mathematicians. There was no kind of wide scale industry um, take up of mathematics degrees, um, except probably into computing. And, you know, if had I known what I was, you know, had I had I had better advice, maybe or had I really thought sat down and thought about it. I would have realized that we were at the golden age of what became data science and that that the programming would, you know, would be a very good career path for me. And I could code at that point. Coding was has been part of my life since I was very small. But I just didn't. I I can't really explain it. I I ended up spending my 20s and 30s, uh, frankly, enjoying myself in ways that as a parent now I look back on and think, would hor- yeah, they obviously would pro- horrify my parents and will, will probably horrify me when it happens to me, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it was, it was different back then as well. Um, <laughs> no, but it's, uh, but again, I think the, the part that I like about the, the kind of whole idea of that is that you can you can get a good degree and like have, have a kind of good, decent head on your shoulders like you do and then not really know exactly what to do straight away. Like that's not, that's not a bad thing for a lot of people to, to have to do a bit of like... I don't know, kind of some different jobs. We had um, Jimmy on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he had like he had a job oh, he list really as long as you're on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was yeah, he's been a yeah painter, a plumber, a whatever else. He, he tried all of it at some point, mostly to kind of yeah. earn some money. But like he, he kind of hacked his way into the world of data, and, and it's, it's, so sometimes what? it's nice to hear those ones. Yeah, what I what I'd say though is that, and what I say to my kids, and and indeed my team, is that any it's better to have any plan than no plan. And I think what when you listen to him speaking, you know, he had uh, plans; they just didn't work out the way he thought they were going to work out. Mm. Um, and but in a lot of cases, he was directed to a particular end point, um, and he changed his mind. And there's absolutely, you know, I think the difference is that I I had no plan. I, I had no real plan as to what I was going to do. And that's what, you know, if I could go back and change it, I would be much more like he was and actually think uh, I would do something that, that is directed towards a goal. Um, and that's going to put me, end up putting me in a better position than, than I ended up in. I mean, I've not ended up in a bad yeah. position by any means, but it, that only, <laughs> that only, that only came about at a point where I actually thought, you know, I, I need to figure this out and I need to start working towards some kind of goal. So, yeah, I, I thought um, he was super interesting. That guy. Yeah, oh yeah, no, he's he's great. And you said you'd kind of been coding since you were very young. Did that follow through all the way from like being young, going to university, the kind of time in between? Were you still doing that for fun? And then obviously, when you start your career, there's a there's a new element to it. But did you keep doing that as just something you enjoyed? I did enjoy it actually. And uh, weirdly, I start I first coded at summer school. Uh, my parents were living in in America. My dad, as I said, was a diplomat, and he was based in Washington. And my my mum used to make us go to summer school, which we absolutely hated, right? School in the summer, right? I mean, there was nothing to like about it, except that uh, she enrolled me on this uh, computer course. And this was probably in the – must have been in the uh, late 70s. Uh, so the a very, very early stages of – uh, of what would later go on to be, be desktop computing, you know, schools had a handful of computers. And I actually learned to code, first of all, when I was age about eight or nine. Um, and yeah, and I kept that up uh, throughout uh, school um, and throughout university. And then, in, in fact, in each job that I've done, I always found a way to, to in- somehow incorporate coding into it, even if I had to shoehorn it in, you know, myself. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then getting on to the kind of um, career element of it. So obviously, given that you're on the podcast, you've ended up working in the wonderful world of data. I think you started at a 
NUS services. And I think, I don't know, where, where did you start with that? I was thinking you ended up being kind of data systems manager, but what, what did that role kind of entail and, and what did they do? So they were, uh, NUS services is quite an interesting company because it's uh, owned by the the student unions for all the universe, the majority of the universities um, in the UK. And um, if you think about it, each of those universities has a bunch of bars, runs a bunch of bars and shops, and collectively they have tremendous amount of bargaining power. In, you know, with uh, with the suppliers. So, in fact, that you know, if you if you put them all together, the bigger, I think, the biggest um, like single purchaser of beer, for example, in the country, uh, bigger than most chains of pubs. Yeah, can I know that you've put that in my head? Yeah, that would be an insane amount of purchasing of alcohol <laughs> yeah well yeah so they had a lot of purchasing power and the company was established by the unions the as a co- collective to do collective bargaining uh, on behalf of to buy things like beer crisps you know the the staple student union things um so they had they generate they generated uh, a significant amount primarily of financial data and that was really the first job that i worked in where I was uh, working with data uh, from the point of view, interacting with it, it, coding products to view it, to visualize it, and to to allow the the individual student unions access to the information. So it's the first time really I kind of had a had a career where data was at the forefront. Did you have a bit of a kind of eureka moment at that point where you were dealing with these various data points and like trying to make it into something kind of legible for other people? Did did it just start to make sense that you can use your coding ability, your math skills, your stats skills and kind of ability to talk to people? Did did it just start making sense at that point? To the, the 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 that was the start of where I thought actually telling stories with the data is a very important part and things with you know, probably a point which was one of the earliest times that could have that, that could realistically have been done you know the ability to to uh, ingest process um, and make that data available in ways which told the the uh, different people the, the story that they needed to hear uh, and compare you know one student union but prior to that no none of the unions knew what the other unions were doing how they were doing what they were selling you know, and um, so, yeah, I, I, that was the first point where I actually thought this is something that I think I could do quite well. And do you know what makes that whole story sound uh, or make, makes it um, more terrifying uh, that now you could tell that story about a job you just started in 2020 of a company that has lots of data in different places, probably <laughs> on a spreadsheet, and they don't talk to each other and they can do with someone like you to come in and tell them what they're doing. Like It almost sounds like that could be just now, yeah. opposed to you being doing, doing that quite early. I mean, what, what kind of tools were they using out of interest? Like, Was it all just on spreadsheets? Uh, no, they were using um, Access. Uh, which is put, still, I believe, it's still part of Microsoft. Yeah, uh, I think yes. I'm not sure I've seen it in in action, but it was a very practical tool, really. In the same way that Excel is still used, um, and be, it, people use it because it's easy to use. And Access was a, a very powerful tool for interacting with data at the time. Yeah, we've moved um, on since then, but I learned a lot from that. No, I bet. And it's always good to, to, I suppose, use some of those tools and see how it all has progressed as well. Um, although I happen to wholeheartedly disagree that Excel is easy to use, um, but that's just me. That's just me. So, yeah, you spent a few years there. Um, and then I think you moved on to, is it ITIS Holdings? So, uh, again, yeah, so what, what did they do? And, and I mean, as it happens, you joined them as kind of head of science and innovation. So, again, looking at that kind of senior role using data, I imagine. So I joined them originally as a as a kind of mathematical SQL developer was, oh, yeah. the, was the reason for the the original posting. So so um, Itis was a company that was set up by one of the Northwest kind of serial entrepreneurs, a guy called Stuart Marks, and he he ran a team who were very innovative, and you know he 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 liked to develop products that he could sell obviously but but kind of the the atmosphere in, in the company was you know if you had a good idea and they thought they could sell it then they'd go ahead go build it so i joined actually uh, as a um working with data specifically around the mathematics of road traffic because it's a company that it's uh, was set up to uh, monitor levels of congestion 
on the roads. And uh, so they were processing quite a bit of data. And then what they would do is they would collect data from vehicles driving around which had GPS devices in them. And GPS was relatively new at that point, uh, in, in the sense that you could having GPS in a, in a vehicle and mobile was, was a relatively new concept. Um, but some, but taxis and, and uh, delivery fleets were the f- some of the first adopters of that kind of technology. And we bought the data uh, that came out of the, the kind of the, what you used to call the digital exhaust. We don't hear that term very often anymore. But like a secondary use of that data is to, is to monitor how, how fast traffic is moving on the roadways, provided you can, you can perform a number of functions which which translates the raw these raw blips of GPS into into traffic speeds, and so I was hired actually to support the mathematical transform those mathematical transformations. But very quickly, as I say, there, there was a very innovative company, and the guy I worked for, a guy called Jonathan Burr, set us up as a kind of innovation team who would work on the data to produce new products, and that's kind of when things from my point of view, uh, started taking off. That, that, that interface of data plus innovation plus business, that, that I felt like I hit my sweet spot at that point. Nice. And, and it, obviously it wasn't by chance, but you were, you were hired in to do something quite specific. And then just from having kind of a good leadership team and, and people with kind of some ambition, you got to, to kind of take that jump, right? Because the opportunity was there, we had the data, we had the opportunity, and it was a startup company. And so, you know, worked in I've worked in a few different startups where they are to a certain extent casting around for products. You know, they 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 know what they want to do, they know why they you know they have a reason for being. But if something's going to sell, then they're going to build it. So, you know, that was I, I think there was a lot. There was it was a fortunate uh, confluence of of opportunity. Um, and ability at that point and, and availability of data yeah nice and then so around the um kind of september 2011 time you moved to inrex who some people might know the name given that they've been in manchester for a while now but i'm not right in saying that um so they're an american company but back when you joined them in 2011 was it an early kind of an early time to join them in manchester was there much of a presence there so actually, Inrix bought ITIS. So oh, okay. the history was that uh, we would compete. Uh, ITIS and Inrix would compete for um, the same, uh, the, you know, the same contracts. And one of them, one of the, the the really innovative products that we we built as ITIS was uh, the BMW Connected Drive project. Was for the BMW Connected Drive project, which was the first time that uh, kind of connected vehicle data was extracted from private private vehicles and used uh, and that data was passed back into it through through kind of t- telephonic communications so uh, they had a they the incredibly innovative company BMW um, and they had a project called connector drive which part of which was to supply real time traffic information directly into the head units of the car so that so the the you know the displays that are put in front of the of the driver um, and ITIS uh, won that contract as part of a consortium working with some European, it's kind of a kind of equivalent companies, one in France and one in Italy. Uh, we were responsible for the UK traffic and uh, the German traffic. And then we had a French company and an, and an Italian company who, who supplied the traffic for their respective nations. And we were competing. We would compete for this kind of uh you know this kind of contract against Inrix, and I was we were often lost out to them, and I was always annoyed by the fact that they were winning contracts from us. They were taking you know uh, business that I thought was kind of rightfully ours, and they obviously felt the same way because uh, they ended up coming and buying us, um, buying buying Itis at the time, and then uh, and then um, I worked for Inrix, I ended up working for Inrix for for a fair bit of time um, because I I basically liked. Again, it was a startup, and I liked the I liked the space. I liked the opportunities of working with very large amounts of data on very innovative mathematical projects, and I loved uh, the American kind of culture of can their, their kind of can do attitudes. Yeah, it all, it all very much worked for me. 
there's just the Americans just have this super confidence about everything they do, don't they? So you mentioned some of the problems you were working on. Going back to that BMW project, was that the kind of were they one of the first ones to do like on the GPS? It would tell you if there was like uh, traffic jam up ahead, so to take a different route. Was it that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, so we'd build some products that were very innovative. And at the time when I was uh, working on, you know, those products, I didn't, I didn't know much about what you would later call data science. But I, we ended up kind of recreating some uh, projects that were very similar to 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 what when I read about them later on. Things like naive bays. I mean, it's very fairly straightforward, but it's you know we ended up using similar concepts that we had invented for ourselves just because I didn't know what. I didn't know about those things at the time. <laughs> and and uh, we, so we had a product that was like pre-BMW. We had a product where you'd phone up on your mobile phone and you could type in your destination in, uh, as a postcode. This was one of, this is one of the, the first times you could ever get live traffic data. You'd type in your destination and uh, we'd route you down the major route, roads to that postcode and then it would read out a script that was um that was sort of put together from different pieces to actually tell you what it was going to be like on your journey so it would say like yeah on the m6 there are three minutes of delay between junctions nine and eleven you know that sort of thing yeah. it was sort of all put together but it was a really cool product and uh, we ended up recreating, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff for the connected drive projects. But yeah, it was the first time that that um, kind of pre-smartphones or around the time of the development of the smartphone, but the first time that people, that drivers could get live information and live routing decisions, or rerouting decisions in their cars. Yeah. Um, it must be one of those industries as well. So like, I'm sure this is applicable across tons of different things in data science but i'd imagine like around the time you were at itis to inrix taking over to when you left just recently the the jump in like what the industry is able to do not just from a data science point of view but also just from like the the cars and the traffic and the cameras and the ability to 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 get all of this data it must just be like night and day um in in many ways it is so when we started we were uh, consuming I mean, thousands, tens of thousands of points. I mean, probably hundreds. I can't remember the number. Hundreds of thousands of points, probably a day. GPS points. I mean, and converting that into traffic information. But our ambition was very low. You know, our actual level of ambition of what we thought we could do was incredibly low. Looking back, you know, we thought we 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 just produced traffic on motorways, and you know, it was just like junction to junction from junction two to junction three is going to take this long. So exactly what now when you drive around on the motorway, you can see it will say 17 minutes to junction seven. It was it was that kind of level of information, which is just really a measurement. By the end, we were producing, we were consuming, um, I, I was, it was about a billion and a half points a day, I think, <laughs> and producing global traffic, you know, so for traffic within, it was in 40 countries, on every major road uh, with uh, with accuracy of 100 meters. So, yeah, the ability to consume and process the data and produce results, yeah, yeah, was it was a, it was a huge step forward uh, over that period of time. But it but it never felt like because we were at the forefront of that industry, it never felt like uh, it was hard work. It was just always a natural progression. You know, the the number of points that we could consume kept up with the ability for the, the pipelines to ingest those and the, our ability to match those points onto the roadway kept up with the mapping technology. You know, it was, it was kind of, we were just surfing on the, on the wave of, of what technology was available at the time. You know? Yeah. I was going to ask you that. So like you were doing maybe a hundred thousand points a day and then it goes up to the billions. Does some of that rely on, the like computing power and technology available rather than the ability of your team like you could have done that right at the start but there just wasn't there wasn't the power to do so um so there was a lot there were a lot of algorithmic advances which uh, you know it was it's a non-standard uh industry so you know there's not a lot of material that you can go on to learn from there's not books of how to do this sort of thing um but the, yeah no the primary uh, the primary driver for our ability to do that, yeah, was was simply parallelized pr- parallelized processing, for example, um, 
and um, uh, yeah, even even things like ingesting the data and tracing out for one vehicle the path that that vehicle took. Looking back on how we did it at first was incredibly naive. By the end, you know, we were we were very had very very sophisticated algorithms that required parallelization to to allow them to work. So yeah, it was yeah it it came a lot on a, a great deal. Yeah, I think like you said, you're kind of riding that wave as the advancements came. So did you guys? Yeah. Um, so last two questions on Enrix. So. You, I think we kind of briefly talked about this before, but um, was there a big difference in, I don't know, just the whole organization, given that it was American and you mentioned the culture already, but I mean, they were a West Coast successful tech company from the US and then obviously they'd taken over something in Manchester. Did you notice a big difference between the two? I don't want to say like, I hate the word technology scene, but I can't really avoid it in this, in this sentence. Um, but did you notice a big difference in those things? The, the, so the biggest differences that we noticed were that um, the ability to hire and fire people in because they're based in Washington in Seattle, which is in, in the northwest corner yeah. um, on the west coast. You know, the, the, they have very lax what well, we would consider incredibly lax um, laws around hiring and firing people. So they could hire somebody from another company, uh, make an offer one day, and then that person would appear the next day. So it was like. You know, there was almost no loyalty whatsoever to uh, a particular company. If, if yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying there was no loyalty, but there was the ability for people to leave at any point that they wanted to if they so, got a better offer. So, did they not have notice periods, or did they not have notice periods in no, I don't, I don't that kind of culture? Yeah, I don't think there was any concept of being able to hold people uh, against their will. Oh yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. <laughs> so it's like incredibly, this incredibly liquid market where, uh, and they didn't like to talk about people leaving, particularly for obvious reasons. But yeah, you turn up one day at work, and it would just be like, oh, I've, uh, a guy would say, "Oh, I'm leaving," and um, yeah, I'm starting my new job <laughs> on Monday. You never yeah. see them again. Yeah. Um, must have been hard for Enric. Well, maybe not. Actually, I don't know enough about the business, but it must have been relatively tricky based, being based in Seattle, given that Microsoft is a big base there, right? And I mean, it's obviously Amazon's headquarters. And so my wife works for Amazon. And what I've heard from some of those guys is that when you go to Seattle, it's almost like Amazon have created a city by themselves. So like, was it difficult trying to get people to join Enrix? It was. It really was. It wasn't difficult within Manchester, actually. We were able to hire a tremendous team um, of data scientists. So data science was based in, uh, ended up being based in Manchester after the merger of the two companies. But within the the, the hiring scene in Seattle, the, pro- the, the primary problem was that as a, as a, as a startup company, it, it was relatively easy to hire people in because it was all kind of potential. People would come because it was, there was, they felt like there was huge potential upside if, it te- if that company turned into an Amazon or a Microsoft or an Expedia or any of the other companies that are kind of based in Seattle or, or down the, the coast in, in San Francisco or, or LA. Or, and, and then if, when you got to a very big company like Amazon, then that was also obviously easy to hire people into. Yeah. But uh, those kind of middle-sized companies tended to all be competing for a for a pool of people that were, you know, not, not, you know, I'm not saying they weren't in demand, but you, you know, there was, there was little to, to distinguish one company from another, if I could put it that way. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I think you still get that as well. Like in Manchester and Edinburgh, where I do most of, uh, of kind of our recruitment, the, when we're recruiting for startups or scale-ups, mm-hmm. there's a really, there's a really excitement around, a percentage of the candidate community and then when we're also on the flip side of that recruiting for the the really big companies then again there's an excitement there but I, we tend to kind of find ourselves more in that kind of SME market so it, it can be harder to grab people's attention and kind of pull them out of certain companies just because I suppose it's just a, a kind of like conscious bias type thing like a mentality thing in their head that the startup has an excitement the big company has like a stability but you're kind of in between otherwise yeah, and um, like like Itis, Inrix had a was in a, operating in a similar space, and so the 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 way that we could attract people is by 
was by being able to uh, point to the the non-standard nature of the work, the very large data sets, and that was attractive. You know th- that that kind of work was very attractive to some people. The mathematical and algorithmic nature of the of the engineering work and the science work that we were doing, it was attractive to a lot of people. But you know, at the same time, you know there was huge competition, and people would always yeah we we probably hired half of our staff from Microsoft, and then they would go back to Microsoft. You know, yeah, a couple of years they would go back and almost use it as a a way of getting a a promotion within Microsoft. That's yeah. that's sometimes how it felt. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure there's Microsoft or Amazon, and I'm sure this is true. They have like a phrase for people that leave, and then they come back within like six months or twelve months. Like they've got like they they have a name for those people because it happens so often. So that makes sense. Um, and as was last question on uh, on Inrex now. Obviously, we're in the middle of all this COVID stuff, so everyone's kind of used to remote working and uh, and doing like video calls and um, having teams all over the country. But you were doing that kind of back at Inrex. I mean, you had the the leadership team in the states, um, or some of them anyway. Uh, was that a kind of weird experience for you, or do you think that's kind of set you up quite well for not just COVID, but just being able to manage people in different ways? So I think what's what I learned about. Uh, how to operate in this in you know, this, this sort of COVID style environment um, is that it, it really came from almost like the first day because uh, when we merged, that all, I, I was chief scientist. I was you know head of head of science. My role at I was head of science, and when I joined um, Inrix, there already was a head of science. So I had to I had to find a way to distinguish myself from what that person was doing and in fact that's where I, I i i clearly recall casting around for what i was my job title was going to be and reading a an article that mentioned data science and how data science was a was a kind of the you know the a new thing and when i read about what data science was i actually thought well how it was described in this particular article i actually was oh that's what i do that's what i'm doing so i'll just call myself that having no idea that that would yeah. You know the, the kind of explosion of data scientists would come later on. It was just like, well, that's what I do, so that's what I'm going to call myself. I'm not saying I was the first person in Manchester to call themselves a data scientist, but it it, it is possible. You would what? be, I reckon, one of the first. I mean, a lot of people change their job titles, maybe around. 2013 four, maybe 14 um, to more accurately reflect reflect what they do but I reckon yeah you, you'd be one of the first ones but uh, all for the right reasons as opposed to maybe what some people do now given that you well, chose it because that's what you do I remember I remember it saying I mean I, I, I remember it saying in the article you know this is this is the the coolest job or something like that and so that probably helped as well but <laughs> It did. It did basically describe what I was saying. So, so that was, you know, it seemed like a fair, fair option. And when I spoke to my, it re- what what it helped was when I spoke to my new boss, I was able to, you know, distinguish what I was doing from uh, what other, you know, what other people in the company were were doing. And as a result of that, uh, I learned that, you know, apart from anything else, y- you have to be in the business of PR for yourself and your team particularly if you're remote, you have to constantly be working to make sure that you, you, you know, the, the, the rest of the business understand the value that you're bringing, particularly if you're working in what might be quite obscure or very um, like esoteric areas to the, to the business. So, you know, it's, it's really important that uh, what, what I discovered was that it was very important to um, spend time with your stakeholders explaining why the work you were doing was important. It was important to to spend time, you know, making sure your boss understood that, and and that's why I call about being in the, in the business of PR for yourself. Yeah, no, I really like that. And I mean, I've definitely been guilty of it in the past as well. But I'm sure there's lots of data scientists in the same boat where they kind of just they're doing a very good job, so they they're almost kind of hoping that that will be enough. But like you said, if you are remote or in a bigger company, sometimes you need to to do a bit of shouting about it. So. Yeah, you said you were at Inrex for a long time, uh, and then at the start of this year, pretty much, you moved on, uh, and now the Director of Data Science and Analytics at N Brown Group, who, from what I know, uh, they're kind of a bit of a, a Manchester institution, right? Kind of, They've been in and around the world of Manchester and kind of, uh, I think, was it textiles and then obviously into fashion uh, for, for a long, long time? 
Yeah, so they were um, set up in 1859. Jeez. And, yes, one of the uh, – and, uh, you know, obviously have a history around uh, the Manchester uh, clothing industry from a, for a very, very long time. But we're actually one of the first companies to use the Royal Mail to deliver their products. That was their thing. No way. Catalogs, yeah, they, and they, they delivered products through the mail, so they didn't have shops. I think they had some shops, but uh, their primary way, method of distribution. So that was an innovative company from the get-go, really. And, you know, got come full circle, really. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it's, uh, I've heard a lot about kind of the, the company, where it's gone and where it's gone. I've been into the offices. They're pretty impressive. Was there kind of anything particular that, that kind of attracted you to the role? Um, I mean, we'll get on to it in, in a couple of minutes or so about kind of your first impressions. But what, once you decided that you might might be joining them, was there particular kind of challenges or problems or kind of something in the industry that, that sparked an interest? Um, I didn't, uh, well, as you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't uh, 100% convinced by the proposition at the beginning. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I should explain that, you know, working for Inrix was, I, I, I loved it. I loved the team that I had. I loved the opportunities that, to, to, uh, that the work provided. And I, and I particularly loved um, going to Seattle, which is a brilliant place. You know, yeah. it's, there's, there's no two ways about it. As a father, uh, taking my kids somewhere, and we were able to spend the summers there, um, and I was, you know, introduced my kids to lots of stuff, lots of experiences that they wouldn't have had otherwise. But also, it's just a brilliant place, and we had an office in LA as well, so I got to go there to Santa Monica quite a lot. You know, I just loved, I loved that, I, I just loved it. Yeah, and uh, I wasn't particularly looking for a, to to move on. And I certainly wasn't thinking that I was going to move into a fashion business. But, you know, the the thing about N Brown is that um, when I met the the CEO and the CFO for the and the the chief people officer for the first time, I absolutely got the impression that that they were on a journey that that I wanted to be part of. And that was a huge part for me. Uh, to to uh, to want to join them to uh, tr- you know help the business to become uh, the the kind of data business data driven business which uh, which I had seen you know on the west coast for example yeah. like everything every decision that is made you know is informed by data yeah um, no I've heard that from a few people that, that kind of when you're in that kind of American uh, even going to the meetups and stuff and the, the, the conversations that you have and the, and the topics that get presented on it just feels different um, yeah. so no, that, that makes sense um, and I suppose given the timing of your new role uh, with it being well you're probably about six months in now right but the majority yeah. of that has been remote so a lot of kind of challenges how has it been kind of starting a role in this kind of weird time and how has it been managing a kind of team remotely yeah so uh, i was i was i think it was in the office for about five weeks before the lockdown occurred and we actually started working remotely before that uh, slightly before the kind of full lock because uh, i could see which way the wind was blowing and i wanted to make sure that we could actually operate as a remote team first of all so my experience of of working in in uh, for a, for a remote company has been very very helpful but what i would say is that actually data science in many ways is is quite well suited to uh, remote working uh, yeah. compared to other parts of the business anyway some of the product sides much more difficult makes you know much more much more challenging um what, what we found is that the ability to have very quick discussions if that's what you want to do and to go from meeting to meeting much faster than you could do in a physical office actually makes things work a bit faster hmm. and the remote nature has meant that our kind of documentation and requirements to uh, communicate have had we've had to step that up but actually, those, those are really no bad things. And some of the things that you get lazy about, perhaps when you're in an office and you can much more quickly, uh, you know, you can you can grab somebody if that's what you need to do. Actually, grabbing somebody is, is still easy to do, but the, the, you can't perhaps draw on a board in the same way that you can in an office environment. So there's a, you, you tend to spend a bit more time on the documentation, uh, on the kind of technical sides that, that you, you perhaps would have overlooked. No. Yeah, no, that makes sense. 
and I think you're right. A lot of the people I've spoken to, the kind of data and, uh, and software development worlds, are quite nicely suited for remote work, at least in some way, shape, or form. But yeah, I never really thought about it from the product or merchandising or or, or like some of the other areas of the business at Empire. It must be really tricky. I mean, that kind of moves quite nicely on to uh, the topic of recruitment. We should actually, before we get onto that, because I've just realised I didn't really touch on. Uh, is there anything, and you might not be able to talk about this in a huge amount of detail, but is there anything specific around the world of, of kind of data science or, or um, machine learning, AI, whatever you want to call it, uh, that N. Brown are, are focused on? Or is it kind of just, like you said, trying to become much more data-driven throughout the business? Uh, that's a that's a good question. You know, the, the, it's, the N. Brown is, is on a journey to become data-driven across its whole, across the whole business. Um, so there are a lot of there, there's a lot of work to be done. What I think is important in in retail is that um, there's a huge amount of of science which has been developed. Obviously, you know, unlike my previous role, there's actually a lot to go on, and there are huge opportunities across retail to uh, introduce innovative um, methodologies. What what what's interesting about N Brown actually, and where we are going to develop differently from other companies is that it's one of its primary goals is to is to deliver uh, clothing to underserved markets so you know it's not it's not like a a fast fashion uh, retailer it is much more uh, our, well our mission statement is to make our customers look and feel amazing and that is you know that that the the challenges that are inherent in uh, making clothes for you know not for for less traditional markets um, actually, will is is where AI is really going to help us, and machine learning is really going to help us. Yeah. So I can't talk too much about the the projects that we have ongoing, but just to say, you know, we the the, the advantage of 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 where we are currently within machine within machine learning as an industry, a lot of those things are really going to help us in the future for sure. Yeah. No, nice. I appreciate it. Throw that as a complete curveball from everything we talked about before. So <laughs> that's fine. Uh, so. Yeah, so I was going to get onto recruitment. So you've obviously done plenty in your career uh, so far with the positions you've had, and you mentioned building that really, really strong team at Inrex, and I think uh, the, the kind of team you've got in place at M Brown as well. So, do you have any, if there's any kind of aspiring heads of data or anyone in the position to hire people, um, is there any kind of top tips from you to kind of building really high performing data teams wherever they are in the world? Well, I'm sure I, I don't need to to uh, tell you, Liam, but recruitment is the most important thing that that you can do uh, within the business. There's, 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 so there's, glad you said that. <laughs> there's no two ways about it. Uh, I've hired people that I've looked back upon and regretted, and you you know you can spend so much time trying to fix a problem it, it, unless you're prepared to invest the time up front in making sure that you know you you, you hire the people that are right for your for your business. It's, it's the single most important non-technical activity that, that a head of data should be doing. So I've been fortunate in that, you know, I, I've been given a fairly free reign to hire people of the quality that I want to hire in. And when it comes to data science, you know, you have to look for things that are different from other technical industries, the technical parts of the industry. Because the 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 requirements to to be successful are, in my opinion, fairly unique. Um, you, you need people who are technically adept, of course, but being technically technically adept is not sufficient uh, to to be a good data scientist. You also need uh, curiosity. You need business. You need you need an interest. Well, curiosity really can cover a lot of things, but primarily what it means is that you're interested in how your product fits into the whole the whole big picture, and you need to you you need to be uh, fairly dedicated to problem solving. And if you you can find those three things, and those three you know, two of those three things are relatively difficult to test for, then you will you will hire you will end up hiring very good data scientists. And I've actually inherited a brilliant team at N Brown. The recruitment, uh, you know, the recruitment that they have done so, you know, b- before my time, was was really very, very good. Um, and uh, so I've been very fortunate from that point of view. But it, but I, I I do believe that investing time in in recruitment is is time very well spent, even if what the end result of that is that you you know you decide not to 
not to hire somebody, if you know what I mean. That's a, a kind of roundabout way of saying there's a lot of, there can be a lot of wasted time, but that, that way, it's like watching football. You have to watch a lot of football <laughs> to see the good, the great goals, right? And yeah. you have to ha- interview, potentially interview a lot of people to find the people who are right for your team. Yeah, and I think you're uh, spending a lot of time to not hire is much better than spending no time in hiring really people that disrupt the current team or don't do what they say they can do. Um, so no, I, I totally agree with that. And you mentioned kind of uh, the team that you've inherited just now, so it's not something we've spoken about loads on the podcast before. And um, but when we were um, catching up before the, the podcast, you mentioned that you'd actually seen one of your now team, Mary, um, speaking at mm-hmm. Man Um So I don't want to claim all the credit for you joining M Brown, but if uh, if any of your bosses are listening, then they can. They can buy me a beer or something. But yeah, no, you said that she, she really impressed you during the, the presentation. And obviously she was speaking about some of the work she was doing at M. Brown. So just, I think the reason I wanted to mention that is from a, a hiring manager's point of view, or, or if you've if you've got hiring responsibility in your team, getting either yourself or some of your team out to these meetups and um, some of the technical sessions you can go to and some of the presentations you can go to, it's actually a, a very good way of spotting talent or um getting ideas for things right oh uh, look i think it's um i think those meetups and uh, you serve multiple incredibly important purposes within a community and you know i do want to pay tribute to the to to you in particular because of the of the work that you've put in to building up the 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 meetup scene within manchester um i think before you came along there wasn't there was none Probably uh, yeah, I think that Eric's, Eric had the idea of sitting in a room with like maybe you, like someone like you, someone like Leanne Fitzpatrick, someone like Mary maybe, and just like he didn't know anyone else in Manchester who was doing any sort of data science. So he just wanted to like get a room of 10 people and just chat. Uh, but it kind of grew arms and legs even from the first mm-hmm. one. So when I started helping him out with it, it just kind of exploded and there wasn't really a data science meetup. Obviously, there's now quite a few, but at the time there wasn't really anything. Um, yeah. So a bit of it, a bit like what you mentioned earlier in the show, a bit of it was like timing and a kind of we had the ability to pull it off at the time and it worked out quite well. But yeah, no, it's been good. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, the the I think that that's you know the advantage from the point of view of as a myself as a consumer, I can can obviously I can read papers and I can watch videos, but there's some, there is something different about sitting in a room and listening to somebody explain it. Somebody like Eric is great. You know, he, his ability to put it, to get across, uh, not just the, the, the mathematical side of it, uh, but also the reason why something works from a mathematical point of view is, um, is really important. But I think if we, if we look at it from the other side, what I view those uh, meetups as uh, opportunities uh, for us as as businesses to tell a lot of potential recruits a story about what the our business is about. So we did some uh, as Inrix. Um, we haven't, as I, far as I recall, uh, done any with Mancamel, but we've done other meetups uh, as M Brown. I mean, Mary, Mary, there has been M. Brown. I mean, since I yeah. joined. Yeah, so actually helped me organise one at M. Brown, but uh, she got some. She got um, uh, Stefan, her husband, to speak um, about one of the projects he was working on. So again, uh, even though she wasn't speaking at that event, M. Brown were really helpful of get, getting us to use the space and everything. So that was great. What I what I'd say though, Liam, is that it, it, what's important from you know from my point of view as a as a director now is to say. When people go and speak at those at, at those kind of events, it does tell your potential recruits what kind of business you are. And you know, one of the things I say to my team is every everything we do is important. Every part of what we do is important, and everything that you put into your presentation is important. So I want people who come away from seeing you speak to really understand why they might want to come and work for N Brown. So it's partly, it is obviously partly a technical presentation, but it's also about the visual visualizations. It's about the story that we tell about our enthusiasm for our product. Uh, and now obviously we're not making any of that up, but I want to make sure that we put across what is good about N Brown as part of that as well. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's really uh, where Mary came in. And by the way, Mary is, on maternity leave at the moment, she she may or may not have a baby. So it's around today. It should be around today. 
Oh, no way. Congratulations to her. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm feeling slightly nervous myself at this point because <laughs> uh, I don't know what's going on. But Mary was, uh, I saw her at um, uh, speaking at a company called On the Beach. So at a man come out that was on, on the beach. Oh, yeah. And um, her presentation specifically stood out because of her enthusiasm for her products. And, you know, the, the way that she put, obviously the way that she put across the story that she was telling uh, about the data that she was describing and the, the, you know, the technical processes was good, but I want, I, I always want to join companies that where I can be enthusiastic and I have an, a team who are enthusiastic about what they are doing at what the company is doing. And that's to me makes for the best data scientists, right? We're yeah. not just there. We're not just there crunching numbers. We are there trying to solve business problems. Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So Mary, Mary did a fantastic job, and in fact, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have joined without her. But it was definitely one of the reasons when I looked at the name, I thought, yeah, I'll go and see them because it was in my mind not even to go to the first interview. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a really good point. And it's, uh, the last two things I'll say on the meetup side of it is you mentioned Eric already. So Eric's someone that he's probably one of the smartest people that that has ever spoken at a man well, But the way he delivers his presentations, you're not there's no intimidation behind it and he's so enthusiastic about what he's delivering that you you wouldn't uh, you can see why a lot of people would want to work for him but yeah. on the on the flip side of that we've had a lot of companies who've said no to speaking at um either Mancamel or Scott Mel or, or even other things we're involved in or even the podcast because their their companies don't want them talking about what they're doing and i get it if someone wanted to go into huge amounts of detail on exactly what models they were building and why. But I think you've just hit the nail on the head about all the other reasons why you should send someone. And it doesn't have to be an in-depth explanation of every single thing you're doing in the world of data science. It can just be a, a kind of high-level overview of what you're trying to achieve. And if you get somebody with that enthusiasm, then you might be able to hire someone from it. So it's kind of invaluable. Yeah, and I definitely have seen presentations from companies that I, I've have made me think whatever bottom line is that company is definitely not for me yeah you know it works both ways i guess that's true yeah so good to know that before so the the last thing we'll talk about kind of on work and i'm not sure how long we'll talk through this kind of up to you um but we talked about this before and uh, and you've obviously had the role of of chief data scientist at inrex and now director of data um and brown so the way that you explained it to me probably better than than quite a lot of people have um is that you almost need to split the two things apart so you split the business you split the science um and then you bring them back together kind of in a seamless way and i think one of the things that stuck out to me when you said that was that that you often work much closer with the business side of your job really starting with non-technical solutions and then you kind of bring science into it maybe maybe not near the end but you bring science into the solution rather than just starting you see this quite a lot and when i speak to data scientists it happens quite a lot as well everyone just wants to start with like we should do this model and they don't really know what the problem is yeah so i think that's that's one of the things that i learned uh, particularly throughout my career in rix and and it's translated very well into N brand is that it, it, what's really important is that you start with things like the goals of the company. What are the what are the strategic goals of the company, and where are the where are the gaps in in that you can fill with data science? So it's no good starting from the so you know the the way if if you look at a lot of the the way the data science is reported in uh, uh, blog posts or even in Kaggle, for example, you know, it's almost like those problems are just lying around waiting for you to solve them. And the data is going to be served up to you. And simply you're going to, you know, come in and, and apply the, 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 uh, this algorithm. And, you know, you're going to be carried above the heads, you know, by the CEO <laughs> as cheering throngs uh, kind of praise you. And, and that's so far from the reality. Because it's not the 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 data part is only the enabler of you know what like you said earlier on the data science has grown up not because not because there's more data but because our ability to process it has has got more we have more ability to process it faster and more efficiently um, so that the algorithms have grown up off the back of our ability to do more stuff uh, and the fact that there is more stuff is almost 
is not irrelevant, but is not the primary is not the primary thing. So within within data science, um, yes, of course you have to have the data, but it's just the enabler of the of what you're going to do. The science is the key part, and if you can't get your business to to fit the science into their business processes, then you are just going to be turning circles um, and and doing work which has no end benefit to your customers. Yeah, right? uh, if, if you put it that way. Yeah, I think it's a really important point, and uh, I've been lucky enough that on the podcast that comes up quite a lot. It's like, the, what is the customer problem, or uh, well, that customer could be just your boss at N Brown, or it could be a, a kind of, um, if you're a consultancy, it could be like an, an external partner, but it's the same problem. Like what, what, what do you need to fix for them? So you've been lucky enough to be in two very senior roles at, at big organizations, but do you think, or does it annoy you at all um, that, that companies are potentially missing a trick that they don't have someone sitting in those board meetings or um, kind of strategic high level business decisions aren't being made with someone with some sort of data element to the rule rather than it just kind of always falling on. I mean, I've seen it data feeds into CTO or CFO or sometimes a hybrid of both, but does it not make sense to have someone on the board that is just in charge of data? You know, it certainly can do. Uh, I'm not angling for a position on the board of the company at the moment, but, uh, and I think I'm lucky actually. To work. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, they, I work for this, uh, within M Brown, data science is within the finance team. And that's, uh, that's unusual actually. Um, in most American companies, it's, it's, it's considered to be a technology function and actually do work obviously a lot with the technology teams. But actually your role often is much more suited to finance, to, to a finance point of view because finance is, uh, has to be neutral across the different project. You know, it has to, has to measure the, the projects from a fairly neutral point of view and an objective point of view. And that's, it's very, very similar to what we do within data science and analytics. You know, we want to measure the worth of our product products and our projects in terms of what we can deliver back to the business um, in a way which which suits very well. Uh, and it's a very, very good idea for that to be separated out from any of those individual projects. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you get into a into a state where you, you you can end up kind of marking you where, where teams can end up kind of marking their own homework and it's uh, difficult to to be objective in those in those cases. So, yeah. in order to really supercharge what the what the company is capable of doing with data, I do think it's important for the data role to be independent. And I and I think increasingly that companies will realise that um, they're all science companies. They are all uh, that 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 um, that that if you don't use science to your competitive advantage, um, it will be incredibly difficult. Over the next decade, to to be a to to be a successful company. Yeah, no, definitely. So yes, agree. I would I would agree that going forward, a lot more companies are going to have to realise that point. Yeah. All right. No, fantastic. Um, I mean, that's that's probably everything on work. Um, uh, the last couple of podcasts I've managed to finish with football, so I'm going to keep doing it. Um, where am I allowed to? But you're a big Man United fan, right? So you said you travelled all over the world. You kind of grew up in Cheltenham, uni at Cambridge. It was Man United. Was it your dad, or was it just something that? Were you a glory hunter? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, so you know, cards on the table here. I <laughs> I grew up. I spent a lot of my youth in America, and I follow, you know, I follow American sports as well as uh, British sports. But because my youth was spent in in America, I never had a foot really followed football, and I didn't. In fact, it was the Italian ninety that was the first time that I. F- that I like a lot of people. I think of my generation, football prior to that was was quite sort of it was it was you know I don't know if, I'm not saying it was difficult to get into, but that, there was something about that tournament that really uh, that really inspired a lot of people to become uh, football fans. Yeah, and um, so and I was one of them. And actually, uh, I lived with some uh, people in Cambridge who were both United fans. Nice. Um, and then the next year, United won the cup. Won the cup winners' cup, uh, the first trophy that I think Ferguson, like, oh, yeah. a real trophy that Ferguson won. And um, so I started following. I can't. I can't really say I was a glory hunter, but I, but no. it was. And it helped. It all helped me choose my team. I was living with two people that were fans, and I watched that tournament 
And um, so I ended up being, yeah, 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 be, becoming a very, and then I moved to Manchester after that. And now I live, you know, uh, I support my local team. I live in Stratford, uh, just uh, 15 minutes walk from Old Trafford. So Spectacularly you know. good timing, starting yeah. to support United after 19. Yeah, well, wasn't it wasn't it good timing. <laughs> I mean, not so good for the last wee while, but still. And, and put, putting your professional reputation on the line, where, yes. uh, where did Man United finish the season? So... I think we'll we'll end up in fourth. I think I think Leicester, Leicester have got two games left, and they're both tough. One's against us, of course. And, yeah, uh, they've got to play Tottenham sometime. Must yeah, be this so, weekend. I, so yeah, so the, the the omens are looking fairly good for us. Uh, we're obviously playing playing pretty well at the moment, and the team has ha, has sort of come alive since Bruno Fernandes joined in a way yeah. that was rather rather unexpected from my point of view. Because you know, I don't, I didn't, I'm, I'm not the sort of person who, who, who uh, think I didn't actually think that Ole was going to do as well as he has managed to do. Yeah, to be honest with you, and I liked obviously as a United fan, uh, you know, as he can do no wrong. But I think that you know, it, it was a tough gig, and I wasn't convinced. Yeah, it was one of those things when he when he joined. So um, one of my colleagues, Murray, we're both like kind of loosely United fans, um, and I've got a season ticket for Hearts in Scotland, but it's no fun supporting Scottish football exclusively. So um, I was a glory hunter because my dad liked United from the Scottish connection way back in the day, and then mm. I just liked them because I liked schools. Uh, in fact, I've got signed Paul Schoolstock, my favorite player ever. But we said at the start, I think we both kind of agreed that if you gave Ollie a little bit of time, that he might actually be quite good. It was just whether or not he would get it because yeah. I mean, he only signed three players last summer, so there's still a long way to go. Yeah. But I mean, who knows for next year? But it, it certainly looks more positive. Um, although last night was pretty grim, other than the other than the goals. Yeah, it's and I think that the, the the lockdown break actually somewhat played in our favour a little bit. Oh, hugely, um, yeah. But. Um, it really depends who we sign over the summer because we do obviously have the basis of a good team. Mm. That said, we're 20 goal, 20 goal difference behind Liverpool. And yeah. frankly, City probably should have won. You know, I think Liverpool are an extremely good team, but but we're outscored by uh, Man City by a huge number of goals. Yeah. Uh, you know, 17 to 20 goals or something so far. And, um, you know, th- those are two extremely good teams. Extremely good. So yeah. where we're going to end up next season, I'm not sure. And Chelsea have strengthened a lot as well. I actually didn't realise last night that um, Leicester are only ahead of United on goal difference. And the annoying thing is that it's like four goals or three goals, but they beat Southampton 9-0. So it's just like yeah. that freak result might end up kicking United out of the top four, which would be, uh, which would be uh, annoying. <laughs> It would be annoying, but I but I I have a lot of love for Leicester actually as a team. I think they you know uh, they they play football in a good way, and you know that you you do want to see teams who have a um, I'm not I'm not so sure about the latest incarnation, but you know you want teams who have a, a, a particular style and way of playing to do well, and that's yeah. the beauty of football. That's what I love about football is that it's a con you know. There's there's a couple of things I love about it. If I may digress for a second, for uh, the the you know the 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 ability for it to be played by people of any size or shape is what a beautiful thing for me. And uh, you know when you watch the World Cup, you know it doesn't it doesn't really matter uh, what the background of the players is. You know everybody's able to compete more or less on a level playing field. Whether you're a, a player like Peter Crouch. You know, or a player like Daniel James, it's, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem to matter very much. There's there's opportunities for all kinds of different players, yeah. Um, and it's a, a very well balanced game compared to American sports, which again I've watched a lot of, um, because everything matters within the within a, a, a game. You know, in, if you watch basketball or baseball, nothing really matters. The get the, the seasons are hundreds of games long, and you know, baseball can end up like eleven runs to seven or whatever so nothing really matters and basketball is even worse right no one basket matters so you can't go to a game and think it matters in football it's such a beautifully balanced game the the length of the season the importance of each game the importance of each goal you know everything is 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 beautifully balanced my um my, my american friends reckon that the reason nobody likes soccer over there is because there is only let's say on average 
two goals a game whereas they're so used to basketball being 155 like points for each team and American football is quite high scoring like they just can't get their head around that a game could finish nil nil yeah well you know <laughs> they're missing out they are sorry too because they have got ice hockey which is of a similar kind of scoring levels I suppose it's, it's a little faster that's true yeah. Um, no, my favourite thing, um, just to finish on, was uh, I played a lot of five-a-side football with my dad's mates. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things was uh, that was explained to me, he was, he was a professor at Stirling University as like in psychology or something. He had a really distinguished career. And then he was just this big bruiser of a striker at five-a-side. And he explained to me one day that he really loves football because it doesn't matter what you do. Like we had people who had all sorts of weird, funky jobs and we'd all go out for a drink after it and play an hour of football. Like I feel like it's not one of the few sports, but it certainly is relatively unique in that it literally just brings anyone from anywhere into the kind of same, the same world for at least 90 minutes. Yeah. And being, and I agree with that and being a United fan, you know, has uh, being from Manchester actually generally has the ability to have conversations with people around the world that's mm. the one thing that they've heard of about Manchester, generally speaking. Uh, sure, slightly, sure they've heard of Man City as well, or has that not happened yet? Uh, it, it is beginning <laughs> to happen. It is beginning to happen. But I was in, I remember being in Seattle probably, yeah, probably three or four years ago. And uh, I was waiting in line for a restaurant, and the guy in front of me heard my accent and asked me where I was from. And I said, I'm from, I'm from Manchester in the UK. And he said, um, oh, Manchester United, those guys put you on the map. Right. That was really, really made me cross because, you know, I was like, well, actually, you know, you, obviously there was, you know, the Industrial Revolution happened in Manchester and, you know, the atom was split in Manchester and it was the home of the suffragettes, you know, and it was where, Alan you know, all, yeah, Alan Turing was, uh, you know, the first computer was built there, programmable computer. And, uh, you know, the free trade hall was the birth, it's where Karl, you know, Marx met Engels and where they, you know, formulated communism and also free trade was was kind of invented in Manchester as well. So yeah, no, it's not quite that, but yes, there's also Manchester United as well. <laughs> but, you're, but you're right as well. Um, yeah. Well, I think we'll end there. But thank you very much for coming on. It was really good to finally get it get it booked in and have a chat. Um, and I think people will get a lot of value from from some of the topics we had there. And it'll be exciting to see what M Brown keeps doing in the world of data. Um, where's best to kind of follow stuff that's happening at M Brown is do you post much on LinkedIn and, and did the team get involved in any sort of specific like meetups or, or is there anything that would be good for people to follow? Yeah, we don't, we don't have a, a big culture of posting stuff at this point. Um, uh, my team, I like my team to be very prominent within the meetups. So uh, I encourage you to, to come to those and to, to talk to my team about what they're doing. Definitely. Nice. Um, hopefully, we can have some in-person meetups sometime yeah, in the well. too distant future. Um, I keep I keep threatening a virtual man camel, but I've not brought myself to do it yet. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you very much. No, thank you. It's been um, you know I've really loved the series. I think uh, you've had some brilliant people on, and I'm honoured to be one of them. Yeah, so pretty buzzing to finally get that one in the books. We couldn't speak to Dominic for ages um, and we, we actually had to rearrange a couple of times, but it did not disappoint in the end. He is a great guy, um, had a brilliant career um, and just very easy to talk to. And as I said at the start um, in the intro, he's been a huge supporter of Mankimel uh, pretty much since the start, which has, been, which has been a great help for me and Eric. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed and thanks as always to Cathcart Associates for making all of this possible. Um, I will see you all soon. Bye bye for now.